Hi! Welcome to another life-changing message from NBC Church. We hope that this message encourages, challenges and equips you in your walk with Christ. Please consider leaving us a review for the podcast on your chosen platform as it helps with getting the gospel out to thousands of people. Thank you! Let's just pray together the prayer that the Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, thank you this morning that the entrance of your word gives light and it gives understanding to the simple. Like David, Lord, we open our mouths and pant, for we long for your commands. So grant us now, Lord Jesus, by your spirit, that spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know you better. In the name of Jesus. Amen. André Chanson was a government minister in France in two separate governments, either side of the Second World War. He was a novelist. Some of his novels are well worth reading. They celebrate the Huguenot tradition of southwestern France and take us back in time to the Camisade War of the early 1700s when for the sake of being able to meet, to read their Bibles publicly and openly and to sing psalms, the Camisades rose up against the French monarchy after the Edict of Nantes had been revoked. Chamson came from a long line of Huguenot Camisard Protestant Christians. One of his ancestors on his father's side had spent 10 years from 1726 to 1736, rowing in the French galleys because he'd refused to stop reading the Psalms and the Bible publicly. Ten years in the galleys. Makes you think, doesn't it? But how much this world hates the Word of God and the simple worship of the living God. But perhaps the greatest single influence on André Chanson's certainly young life was his mother, Sarah, sorry, his grandmother, Sarah Alderbear. Sarah Alderbear lived in a small mountain village in the Cévennes Mountains of southwestern France. And as a young woman, she'd been converted to Christ through the ministry of an unknown female Wesleyan missionary from the island of Jersey in the Channel Islands. And as she came to Christ, two things converged. One was this female missionary's commitment to a weekly prayer meeting, wherever you are upon this earth. And from that point on, Sarah Alderbear held a weekly prayer meeting in her little cottage in the Cévennes Mountains of southwestern France for the rest of her days. And secondly, the Huguenot tradition of every evening lighting a lamp and placing it in her cottage window 
And everybody knew that that lamp meant hospitality, accommodation, assistance is available here. And all you need to do is knock on the door. André Chanson was born in 1900 in the city of Nimes. And when he was 10, his father went bankrupt and the family had nowhere to live. So guess who they went to live with? With Sarah Alderbey in the Cévennes Mountains. And Chanson learned some important lessons about what it meant to be a Christian. The Shunammite woman in today's passage gives us some very, very important lessons as to what it means to be a follower of Christ, a worshipper of God, a disciple. And we're going to look at four of those lessons in a particular way in a little while. But first, I want to ask some questions of this passage. So if you have your Bible, please turn again to Second Kings chapter 4. And we'll ask three key questions of this passage. Verse 8. One day Elisha went on to Shunem. That was in the territory of Issachar. Those of you that were here through last year when I preached at different times will remember the sermon on the, the Tola, the seventh judge, who was also of the men of Issachar. And we looked at that time at the importance of the tribe of Issachar being the Torah scholars of Israel. So it's probably not an in, a, a coincidence that this woman lived in the territory of Issachar. And the character of the Torah, the character of God's law, the character of the first five books of the Bible had rubbed off on her. Shunem is roughly halfway between Carmel and Samaria. And one thing we'll note in a moment is that Elisha's journeys backwards and forwards between Carmel and Samaria had purpose. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually, notice that word, passing our way. If you read carefully the books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, you will notice with a careful reading that there's something major that has changed in Israel from the time of the judges. Samuel, of course, was the final judge of Israel. He was also a priest and a prophet. And as we know, Samuel spent his time as a circuit judge, leading the people in worship, prophesying about God's heart and God's will for the nation of Israel, but also judging the nation. And he was given the privilege of anointing the first two kings, Saul and David, of Israel. As Israel transitioned from judges to kings. But the thread that you've got to look for, but once you do see it, it is glorious in terms of what Samuel instituted into Israel is this. He founded what were called the school of the sons of the prophets. Sometimes called the company of prophets. And you read First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings with an intentional desire to notice every time the school of the sons of the prophets or the company of prophets is mentioned and you will realize Samuel 
instituted something in Israelite society that had never been seen before. Read the book of Judges, and every so often, Israel would fall into such a mess, such darkness, such a mire, such a pit, that God would need to raise up a judge. And while that judge lived and ministered, like Tola, for example, the seventh judge from the tribe of Issachar, the nation prospered, the nation was restored, but then it fell back as soon as that judge was gone, sometimes for many, 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 many years. And I put to you, Samuel recognised Medicine is needed for this. And the remedy he came up with was the sons of the school of the prophets. There were six centers where the sons of the schools of the the school of the sons of the prophets lived and ministered primarily. Gilgal, Bethel, Samaria, Jericho, uh, Ramah which was the birthplace of Samuel. And incidentally, if you're ever reading about the early days of David, when Saul is hounding him and chasing him and wanting to kill him, at one point Saul and his soldiers come to Ramah and David is found in Nioth. Nioth means dwellings or huts. He was found in amongst the school of the prophets in Ramah, Samuel's birthplace. Because he was learning the word of God. He was being refined and taught, ready to be king of Israel. So the reason why Elisha is making this journey continually through Shunem is because he's moving from Carmel on the coast, where Elijah had had slaughtered all of the prophets of Baal, of course, where there was a school of the prophets, to Samaria, which happened to be his hometown, where there was also a school of the prophets. Think about it. When uh, Jezebel was persecuting Israel and wanting to get rid of the worship of the living God from the land, what did she do? She went looking for the sons of the prophets. And the fellow Obadiah hid a hundred of them in companies of fifties in a cave. They lived in community with one or two exceptions. And Israelite society became salted by these Bible schools, wherein people were taught the word of God and the worship of God. Move forward several, well, a lot of centuries, to Connecticut, to New England, and the founding of the United States of America. Guess what Yale University was called from 1701 to 1740? It was called the School of the Prophets. It fell away from that, thanks to liberal theology. And after the revival under Jonathan Edwards on the eastern seaboard of America in New England and Connecticut and so on and so forth, various ministers realized that Yale was no longer the school of the prophets. So they started their own schools of the prophets to salt American society. Without the word of God, society don't function. Or that more of our political leaders were aware of that in these days. So there's a little something about why Elisha was passing continually through the territory of Issachar between Samaria and Carmel. Let's look a little bit about the character of this woman. Depending on your translation, and Luke read from the ESV, verse 8 tells us that she was a wealthy woman, or a woman of substance, or a worthy woman. She was clearly a prosperous woman. 
Now think of the book of Proverbs. Specifically, Proverbs 31, verses 10 to 31, which the Jews read every Friday evening at Shabbat before they have their meal. What does Proverbs 31, verses 10 to 31 celebrate? An excellent wife, a virtuous woman. How many chapters in the book of Proverbs? 31. How many months? Sorry, how many days in most of our months? Not all of them by any means. 31. How many verses in Proverbs 31? 31. Isn't that glorious? There's a proverb and a book, a chapter from the book of Proverbs for every day and every month of the year. Glorious. But what's the pinnacle? What's the peak? Where does the book of Proverbs take us? To an excellent wife. A virtuous woman. Who can find? I found one. Praise God for a gift of my wife. And I'm hoping that there's others in this room that can testify similar. All of history is about God in Christ seeking his bride. Seeking his virtuous woman. Seeking his excellent wife. And that's another sermon. But let's look at her character. Firstly, she was generous. Come in. Have a meal. Just like Sarah Alderbear with her lamp in the window in the Seven Mountains. And it didn't stop there. You know, in Matthew chapter 11. What does Jesus say? Let's just look at that briefly. Sorry, Matthew chapter 10, verse 40. Whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, which this Shunammite woman was doing, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. The catch, of course, if there is one, and there isn't really a catch at all, is that you don't do it for the reward. The Shunammite did it because she had a generous, compassionate heart, because she was a virtuous woman and an excellent wife. And notice, it took her husband a little while to catch up or to catch on. I won't ask for a show of hands if it sometimes takes your husband a little bit of time to catch up or catch on. My wife would have two hands in the air right now. I perceive this is a prophet. She was a discerning woman. She had a gift of discernment. And when her husband, dad caught on, he's the one who did all the hard work and built the chamber on the roof. And the other thing that we notice about this woman, and this is where Elisha says to his servant, ask her what's to be done for you, verse 13. And he said to him, say now to her, by the way, notice, and we'll come to this in a moment, Elisha never speaks directly to the Shunammite himself. It's not that she was a foreigner. She was of the tribe of Issachar. She spoke Hebrew like he did. So what's this about? But anyway, what is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. 1 Timothy 6 verse 6. Contentment, godliness with contentment is great gain. She was a contented woman. The Lord has done great things and I am glad. He is my portion and my inheritance. Contentment 
comes with godliness. What a wonderful, wonderful example of the virtuous wife this woman is. That brings us nicely to this aspect of this passage, which is another question we need to ask. Why does Elisha get his servant to call and speak to the Shunammite? Verse 12, because he didn't just do it once. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him. And he said to him, say now to her, see, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, what then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, well, she has no son and her husband is old. He said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway and he said, notice, she, he's speaking directly to her from this point on. At this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived and she bore a son about that time, the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. The answer to our question is very simple. Gehazi was an intern in the school of the prophets. Jesus was to say centuries later, go into all the world and make disciples. We would rather Jesus himself made the disciples because in our current age, it's not trendy. It's not the dumb thing to say to somebody, do you want to be my disciple? Or do you want to be Jesus's disciple? We worry about offending people. But this is a biblical model. Gehazi was learning. So Elisha had Gehazi have these conversations so that later they could reflect together on what had happened, on where the conversation had gone. There's a little window into the depth that discipleship is meant to take. More on that later. So we've asked a few questions of our passage, which has hopefully helped to set it in a bit of a historical context and a theological context, and also a discipleship context. What I want to do now is look at the four items of furniture that the woman instructed her husband, who wasn't quite as discerning as her, to place in the upper chamber on the roof, the prophet's chamber. Number one, a bed. Come unto me. All ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find what? Rest for your souls. Read Hebrews chapter 4, the first 11 verses. You'll notice that the word rest appears, a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for example, nine times in those first 11 verses of Hebrews 4, which then goes on, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things, all things, are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Why are those things naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do? Because God wants to give people Rest. I work in mental health. My wife works in mental health. You probably wouldn't be surprised at the amount of sleeping tablets 
that get prescribed in today's world because people just can't find rest. And sometimes there's good biochemical, biological reason for that. But I'll tell you one of the main reasons is a, a, a conscience that will not stay quiet. And no pill's going to fix that. The only thing that fixes that is the Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified. Are you walking daily by the Saviour's side? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Do you rest each moment in the crucified? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? The primary reason why God gives us himself and his spirit to point us to Jesus and him crucified is so that we might find rest unto our souls. That's why she said, the bed comes first, husband. Secondly, what did she suggest was next? A table. Come to the table. That's what we're going to do later. Come to the table. Communion. To remember his sacrifice for our sins. Keith and Kirsten Getty, what was their song that they sang recently? The table of the king. The purpose of our life is one of remembrance. Remembrance with a view to the future. I will not eat of this again. I'm sorry, I will not drink this cup again until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Remembering the past with a view to the present reality of resting in him. With a view to his coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. The communion table is meant to be central to all that we do as Christians. Pray for those of our brothers and sisters around the world whose experience of communion for months and months, almost a year now, has been of sitting at home with their little glass of grape juice and their little piece of wafer, watching other people also online doing the same. Praise God that they can do that. But you know that's no substitute of being physically present like the Lord was with his disciples that night in the upper room where he washed their feet. So as you pray for our brothers and sisters around the world, thank God for the blessing and may we never take it for granted of the centrality of the table. What's the state of the table in your home? Because I put to you, the table, the dining table, the kitchen table, whatever it might be in your own home, is meant to be a small reflection of the great communion table and the great banqueting table that Jesus calls us all to. There was no room at the inn, but there'll always be space at his table. How many families these days sit around the TV with a tray or a plate perched on their knee, or even worse, don't bother with the plate, just eat out the, the takeaway cardboard box? The table is meant to be central to our homes. It has a theological purpose. Come to the table that he's prepared for us all. Thirdly, your version may say chair. The King James has it right here. It's a stool. And Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. What was that good part? To sit at his feet and to hear his word. The Bereans were of a more noble character, Acts 17 tells us, than those of Thessalonica. Why? 
because they eagerly took in the word of God, daily checking, reading in the word of God that these things were true. This is the discipleship piece of furniture, to sit together, perhaps even at a table, and to read God's word together. I was out with a friend yesterday who was telling me all of his troubles and wars and things like that as a Christian and how he'll have a couple of days where he's walking well as a Christian and then it's as if Satan just hits him, knocks him for six and he's got two or three weeks of trying to get back to where he perceives he was for those two or three days. And I know this was the Holy Spirit because it wasn't me. I can't think this fast. Ask Linda. I suddenly just said to him, when was the last time you prayed for someone to disciple? And you could feel the air just like drop. And he said, I can't remember when I last prayed for someone to disciple. Last Wednesday afternoon, I spent the first and hopefully first of many occasions at the table of a male friend who's the same age as me, got to know him last year. And basically, I won't go into the story, but the story is, <laughs> gave him a Bible for Christmas he was very, very grateful, but didn't know where to begin. So on Wednesday afternoon, we started reading together the book of Acts. When he read the first 11 verses, because this non-believing fellow had so many insights and so many thoughts about the first 11 verses of the book of Acts, and I just wanted to weep with joy. I said to him, I'll read the first five verses, and then are you all right to read the next six? And he said, yeah, I'm all right to do that. And off he went, and it was glorious. Because there is nothing quite so fresh, nothing quite so beautiful, nothing quite so life-enhancing for the Christian than to be discipling another human being. And you know what happens when you start to do that? You start to be more aware of how you function and the sloppiness in your own head and heart and the laziness of your own practices and the areas where you allow yourself to slip and you think to yourself, if this fellow saw me doing what I'm thinking about right now, what would that do to that witness? Therefore, the question of the whole thing is out the window because of love. Because it matters that we are disciples and that we make disciples. So we've got the bed, we've got the table, we've got the stool. Finally, the lampstand, the candlestick, the menorah, the spirit of man, says Proverbs 20, verse 27, is the candle of the Lord, illuminating the inner parts of the being or belly. When a person is born again, what part of them is born again? The spirit receives life. Spirit calls unto spirit and the spirit is reborn. And even though there's an awful lot of cleaning up to do, there's an awful lot of learning to do, there's an awful lot of growing to do. You see that person and you know that something tangible, real and objective and life-giving and eternal has happened in their spirit. And the discipleship journey, this side of glory, as he conforms us to his image, is about the power of the Holy Spirit in the man or woman's spirit finding its way. And this is what we call sanctification. This is what we call growth in grace. This is what we call holiness into every single cell and sinew and tissue of soul and heart and mind. You're a candlestick. I'm a candlestick. 
when Jesus appeared in his glorified form to the Apostle John. We saw this last year. What John saw to start with was candlesticks. And these are the churches. And the stars are the angels of those churches. Jesus bids us shine with a pure, clear light. Like a little candle burning in the night. In this world of darkness, therefore let us shine. Let us shine, Jesse, with the light of God that's in you. Therefore let us shine, you in your small corner and I in mine. You teach that hymn to two-year-olds. There's so much good theology in it. There's so much practical discipleship in it. So here's where I want to finish. God, in these four items of furniture in the prophet's chamber, is showing us the essentials for our Christian life, individually, as families, and corporately as the body of Christ here in the limestone coast of South Australia for 2021. Let's get our eyes and our hearts and our minds off what the news is telling us. Let's get our hearts and our minds and our lives off how bad and bleak and perplexing it all is. Let's get our hearts and our minds and our lives aligned with the fact that Jesus himself has given us rest. And that out of that rest comes the call to the table. Here and now we're about to celebrate it together. But with a view to that land and realm, dimension, where there's no more sorrow or sickness or death, where there's room at the table for everyone. That's why I had the privilege of uh, worshipping at the Open Door Baptist Church in Mount Gambia. And Pastor Robert Cotton was preaching on, there's not many preachers preach on this these days, Leviticus chapter 17, verses 1 to 11 where the life is in the blood. And the young fella that was with me, who I went to visit on Christmas Day, and he was drunk out of his head, not with the Spirit either, at least not with the Spirit of God, because his girlfriend had just cheated on him or something, and his life was a mess and everything else like that. And he got sobered, and two days later we went to church together, and then last weekend we went to church together again. And this is a fella whose life has been ruined through trauma and drugs and alcohol and temporary relationships. As soon as Pastor Robert Cotton began preaching on the life is in the blood, I actually felt it. He stood there and he just locked in to what Pastor Cotton was preaching. He locked in to the fact that the life is in the blood. And I was concerned for him at the end of the service because everybody wanted to talk to him. Well, not everybody, but some people want to talk to him. And this fellow is a very, very shy man. He's, a, he's been damaged by other human beings. He doesn't cope with people contact very, very well. And so as we're walking out the building, me worried about him, he goes like this. He goes, Whoo. sorry, I didn't mean to do that into the mic. That mic is not full of coronavirus because I don't have it. He exhaled deeply and I said, I'm sorry, was that a bit much for you? He said, no. He said, no, it wasn't too much for me. I finally get it. I understand about the blood and what that means for me. 
And at the end of that service, we'd sung what I've just quoted from. Are you walking daily by the Saviour's side? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Do you rest each moment in the crucified? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? And there's a fella, at least I think he was a fella, he was definitely born a fella, over the way from us, big butch man with a green t-shirt, but the kind of blue, what do you call it, nail varnish, was kind of giving things away, as were the golden ankle bracelets. And he'd been sat restless throughout the service. Suddenly, he just came alive while we're singing that, and he's clapping away, and the joy that was in him. And Pastor Cotton came to see Linda and me on Tuesday evening, as he sometimes does, and he said, did you see that fella? He said, I went door to door with that fella 14 years ago. You wouldn't believe the way he's lived. And I thought, yeah, looking at him, I probably would. But he came alive in the fellowship of God's people under the preaching of God's word. The stool, discipleship. Be disciples, make disciples. And to do that, we've got to be candlesticks that have got a lit candle in us. And there's no excuse for the Christian not to have a lit candle in our candlestick because the light is the light of the world and in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness through you and through me through you David and through me through you Tina and through me through all of us and the darkness has not overcome it Government policy, mass vaccination campaigns, COVID-19, airplane lockdowns, or goodness knows what else, cannot and will not overcome the four essential items of the Christian life. Glory be to God for the bed, for the table, for the stool, and for the candlestick. If anybody wants to learn more about the life of André Chamson, I've got a set of notes on his life. I've only got one set, but you're welcome to take it away with you today, so come and see me afterwards. Let's pray. Father, as we move fittingly into communion in a little while, thank you for what you teach us through the Shunammite woman. Thank you for her compassion Thank you for her discerning heart. Thank you for her contentment. And thank you for her willingness, Lord, to give and to open her home to a prophet. Help us, Lord, to be the people who do likewise. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Thank you for joining us for church today. We pray that this message deepened your relationship to Christ and drives you to action. Our church is at 1 McDonald Street, Naracourt, South Australia, 10 a.m. Sundays, and you can find us on all your favorite podcast platforms. Please consider leaving a review as it helps to expose people to the gospel and great teaching across the nation. Thank you.